We might be in a battle, but have peace tonight because Jesus Christ already won the ultimate war for us. He is our hope. He is our anthem. You may be seated tonight. Thank you, worship team. Praise the Lord. Go ahead and praise him. Would you just lift your hands once again? Just give him honor for a moment. We honor you tonight. We worship you. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Praise your name, God. Praise your name, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. presence is sweet, isn't it? It's sweet. I was going to um, preach this sermon a couple weeks ago, and the Holy Spirit took over and did what only He can do. It was an awesome night. Um, but I am going to, you're going to hear a couple of things that I said that night at the end that I just felt compelled to say. But I'm going to preach that sermon that the Lord placed on my heart for that night. And the title of the sermon is, uh, you've heard it last two weeks ago. It's Abound in Hope. Abound in Hope. And we'll get there momentarily. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, this is your moment. This is your time. This is your platform. This is your microphone. And I give it to you. And I pray in these moments that you'd use me for your glory, for your name, that the truth of the word of God would be proclaimed. It would go out and do what you want it to accomplish. Not what I want, not what I want to say, not a feeling, but truth. Not what I want to say, but you. Not my opinion, but the truth of the word. Let it be that tonight. Open these people's hearts to what you have for them. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of strange to start off um, a sermon entitled Abound in Hope with these verses, um, but hopefully you'll get it here soon. 
Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two in the ESV says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The NLT puts it this way, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. We see this phrase repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes time and time Again, the ESV, the King James Version says it like this. All is vanity. The NLT says everything is meaningless. And this is scattered through this book 38 times, repeated 38 times in the book. And I said this a couple weeks ago. Maybe this is already spinning in your mind. Maybe you're remembering. But the ori- in the original language, in the Hebrew, this phrase, this word was the word hevel. The word hevel. And it's a word that actually more accurately translates like this. It translates better if it were to say smoke or a vapor. And to fail to understand this is to possibly fail to understand the actual point, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the words, honestly, the words meaningless and vanity don't fully communicate what the writer, what the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to us in this book. Everything is hevel. Life is hevel. The writer is saying this. Life is likened to smoke and vapor. And he's using this metaphor to try to help us get a grasp on what life really is like, what it really is. He's trying to give you some insight, some things about smoke and vapor. Smoke is beautiful. It's unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. Try to reach out and grab it. Can you grab it? No. Can you control it? No. It has a mind of its own. And life is a lot like that. Is it not? Life is beautiful. But life is also unpredictable. Life is hard to comprehend. Life can be confusing. Some of you look confused tonight. Just kidding, maybe. Ecclesiastes 1.14 says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, all is hevel, and is striving after the wind. That's what life's like. It's like chasing after the wind. And if you try to run wind down, if you try to run life down and grab it by the horns, you can't. You can't. Because why? Because control is an illusion. I said that a couple weeks ago. Control is an illusion. We are much less in control than we might like to think or admit. We just are. And that's a big part of what this writer, what this book, what the Bible is trying to communicate to us. That control is unattainable to the extent that we might desire or even think is attainable. It just is. However, the book of Ecclesiastes does tell us something that we are very in control of. This is what it says. The one thing you have much control of is your attitude in the present moment. You control that. So stop Worrying, read the book, it's in here. So the writer tells us, stop worrying. Life is out of control. I've tried to control it. I've tried to figure it out. I can't, but stop worrying. 
Stop freaking out. Instead, control your attitude in the present moment. Instead, enjoy a good conversation with a friend. Enjoy a hot cup of coffee when you get up in the morning. Mm, I'm already in this moment can taste the coffee that I'm going to taste in the morning, Lord willing. And if the creek doesn't rise, people still say that, right? Maybe not. Enjoy a good meal. Enjoy the sun of your fa- sun on your face. Because one day, God is going to clear all the hevel. One day, God is going to make all wrongs right. Every single one. One day, justice will be served. One day, it will be. We think evil men get away with evil things. No one gets away with anything. Either Jesus Christ, I said this before, I'll say it till the day I die. Jesus Christ took the wrath of the sin of mankind on his shoulders. It's up to us whether we let Jesus drink of our wrath on that day thousands of years ago or one day we will drink of the wrath that God has for us if we don't choose Christ. That's how it works, people. So what do we do with life in the meantime? The end of the book tells us this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter. He figured something else out. He said, you can control your attitude in this present moment. In the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands. That's what we do in the meantime. We fear God. We keep his commands. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. And with every secret thing, whether good or of evil. So in the meantime, what do we do with our life? We fear God and keep his commands. It's that simple, people. You see... If you were to read this book and just thinking about, think about how out of control you are and that be your focus, it can get a little overwhelming. This book isn't a book about how life is hopeless and you might as well just chill out and give up. That's not what it's about. This book, just like the Bible, is, is not a book about losing hope. Instead, it's a book about making you humble. This book is about making you humble. This book, the book of Ecclesiastes, the word of God, is a hope-filled book. And even in the darkest of times, even in the darkest moments in Scripture, read the Bible. Hope is still present. Hope still abounds. It doesn't go anywhere. And the fact that the Bible tells us that we are a lot less in control than we might like to think, that control is an illusion, that should not trouble us. That troubles control freaks. Anybody struggle with that? You're not going to be honest. It's okay. That shouldn't trouble us or fill us with fear. Instead, it should fill us with hope and give us peace because even though we aren't in control, God is. He is. Our God is a sovereign God. He has all authority and all power. It is in his right and power to do all that he decides to do. He is in full control. Read a few verses about how in control he is. And there are many, but I'm just going to read three passages. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this. 
For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Isaiah 45, 7 through 9 says this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms him, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Job put it this way. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of his can be thwarted by man nor anyone else. And if we read through the scriptures, this is the message. This is the message of the book. There are many messages, but this this message screams throughout the book that God's in control. And even in the moment in history when it seemed like God was in the least amount of control, even in that moment as Jesus was in the garden praying with three of his disciples and Judas and the soldiers come to portray, but, and Judas portrays Jesus, Jesus is arrested. In that moment when Jesus is arrested, this is what Jesus says. What does he say? It seems like he's out of control. It's like, what's going on? Jesus says this, Matthew 26, 53 and 54. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12,000 or 12, excuse me, legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus is reminding everyone around him, you're not taking my life. You're not arresting me. I'm giving myself over to you. I am in control. And then as he stands before Pilate and he refuses to talk with him, what is said in John 19, verse 10 and 11, this is what it says. So Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me. This is after Jesus was arrested. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Whoa. Pilate's trying to flex on Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand who my daddy is. You don't know who I am. Even in the moment, even in the moment that it seemed that God wasn't in control, Jesus reminds us, oh, I am very in control. I have authority. I have power. That's our God. That's our God. When you might not understand why evil men reign in over this world, read through the scriptures, evil men reign. Look around today, evil men reign. And it's like, God, what, what's the deal? You ever ask him that? Not, y'all ain't being honest again. What does Romans 13, 1 and 2 say? 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, that God, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, just to put it shortly, even though there's a lot there, in other words, if evil men are in power, it's because God let them be. He let them. You got to understand that. God let them. Because it can be easy to say, God, if you're in control, why? God let them be there. And it's because this God of the universe is on our side that we can confidently scream at the top of our lungs what Hebrews 13, 6 says. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When the sovereign God is on our side, that can be our attitude. That can be our anthem because the sovereign God, the all-powerful, in-control God will make all wrongs right and more. And because this is the case, we should be the most hope-filled people on the globe. You know what people need right now? More than anything, they need hope. Look around, people. Pay attention. Look spiritually with your eyes and see where people are at. See what's going on. What do people need? They, they need hope. And if they're looking at the church and we look like everyone else, something is wrong. No matter what the news says, no matter what storms we face, no matter how dark things seem to be, nothing nor anyone, nothing nor no one should be able to blot out the hope inside of us. For the rest of the night, I'm going to go to Romans 15. This verse will be our focus. And I, I quoted this two weeks ago. Romans 15 verse 13 says this. I prayed this over you. And this is our prayer tonight. May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I'm gonna read it again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If you leave that there just for a moment. Our God is hope. It says it right here. Our God is hope. Our God wants us to be full of all joy and peace through the power of his Holy Spirit. So why? So hope may abound in us. God desires for his children to be full of, to overflow with, to team with hope. That should be our attitude. I'm going to say two big things from this, ver this verse, even though many more could be said. We can, hear me out, we can overflow with hope 
in any and all circumstances. We can. I, don't, I didn't say we will. I said we can. You can, child of God. This is God's desire for you. Believe it. When we are full of the power of the Holy Spirit, when we have an intimate relationship with God the Father, and as we grow in our understanding of God's sovereignty and that He is for us, hope should be our attitude. Hope should be our anthem. If it's not, it's because you've not spent enough time in His presence. When you face trials, when you face dry seasons, which life happens, right? Life happens. Sometimes we bring about our own trials, and sometimes they just seem to happen all by themselves. You know what I'm talking about? When we face those things, joy and peace can be ours. Joy and peace can be ours. This verse says that Philippians 4, it's a popular verse for a reason. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, these verses say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It doesn't say rejoice sometimes. It doesn't say rejoice when you feel like it. it doesn't say rejoice when things are good. Rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. People, this is available to you. This can be yours. Do you understand that? Now, I could, I could talk a long time about what we personally face, but I want to talk for a moment about what the world around us is facing, what we're all facing. You see, the God of the universe, the sovereign God that we've been talking about, tells us what is to come in this earth. He tells us a lot of what's to come. It's right here. And we find one of these popular passages, and it's popular for a reason. Jesus tells his disciples, which recorded in Matthew 24. We're going to read it. Matthew 24, verse 3 through 14. This is what it says. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and to put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end 
will come. We have this passage, the words of Jesus himself, and many other passages that tell us what is to come. They tell us what the end of things will be like. They also tell us who wins in the end. And just a spoiler alert, we do. But if we know these things are coming, and if we know that God is in control, then our response to them should be way different than those who do not have the hope that we do. I'm gonna say that again. If we know these things are coming, and if we know that our God is sovereign and is in control, then our response to these things in Scripture coming to pass should be way different than it is for the people who do not have the hope that we have. We should not be surprised when we see signs come to pass that Jesus said would happen. Because Matthew 24 is not pretty, is it? It's not pretty. Wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, earthquakes, believers falling away, people betraying one another, lawlessness increasing, love growing cold. These things aren't fun to see. These things aren't fun to go through. This stuff is not enjoyable at all. But what lays right in the middle of this text? What does it say? We, we want to focus a lot on those things I just mentioned, right? But what does it say in verse 6? What does Jesus say? He says, don't be alarmed. Don't worry. These things must take place. It's going to happen. Don't worry. Before we move on, I want to make, make something clear. When we see horrible things transpire in these last days, we don't just sit back. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what the Bible says at all. We do fight. We do try to say th change things. And I'm in no way saying that we should just sit back and do nothing because evil is an inevitable. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this. And what the Bible says, I believe, is this. I'm saying that ultimately we might fight and not see the kind of triumph that we're looking for. It's getting quiet. You and I might fight and not see the type of triumph we're looking for. And it may seem, every word I try to say, I try to say with purpose. It may seem, it may look, at times as if evil is winning. It might look like the devil is winning. That's what it looks like some here, doesn't it, in Matthew 24. But evil only wins when God lets it win. And the devil loses in the end. And in the end, God will make all wrongs right. And no one gets away with no one thing. No one. So we stay full of hope no matter what. We don't let things stress us out to no end. We don't let circumstances take our hope. We don't see anything as defeat. We might have lost the battle, but the war is won. And our God is sovereign. Our hope rests in the sovereign God. So what is our attitude? What is our anthem? What do people need to see in us? They need to see hope abounding. 
No matter what bad news we hear or see, we know the report of the Lord and we have the good news that God triumphs over all. So when we see the end in sight, instead of being full of fear, we should be full of hope, joy, and peace. People, this is what is accessible to us. This is for our taking through the power of the Holy Spirit. This can be yours. This is the hope we have in a God, and this is the hope that's not meant to be kept to ourselves. We have the hope that the world is longing to hear. Second thing, this is the last big thing, but don't get excited because I'm not done yet. So chill. Keep your, don't put your coat on yet. Number two, it's our job to spread this message of hope to the world. I don't, I don't know why there's not more focus on, on verse six I don't, I don't know why. I'm talking about like church-wide, uh, capital C church. I also don't know why we don't talk more about verse 14. This is what verse 14 says. I'll remind you. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all people. And then the end will come. Do you understand? A few weeks ago, we were at um, the Church of God ministers meeting. And in a video, it would have been really easy to miss this, but in a video it said, according to the Church of God, five billion people, we have about eight billion people on earth right now. I don't know how they got this number. I'm just telling you what they said, Okay. Five billion people have never heard the gospel. That's what the church of God says, five billion. Now, understand this. Just a few months ago, I heard another missionary from a different denomination say it's more like three billion. So somebody's off a couple billion. All right, I don't know who it is. I'm not gonna say, I'm gonna lean towards the church of God because the church of God. I'm not gonna say which one, but... It's pretty obvious that billions of people not, not haven't responded, but never heard. They never heard the gospel. It's kind of foreign to you who sat here to think about this. It might be kind of foreign being in the Bible Belt. But there's a lot of people in America in the inner cities that have never heard the gospel. There's a lot of people in Europe, in Western Europe, that have never heard the gospel there's a lot of people all over this globe. They've never even had the chance. They've never even have, had the chance. And that should bother us way more than wars and rumors of wars. That should bother us more than anything listed in Matthew 24. That, that people, people have never even had a chance. And the, the word of God says that they will. 
Before the end of things come, what's going to happen? The gospel will be spread, and then the end will come. So what am I telling you? The church has a lot of work to do. That's what I see. The church has a lot of work to do. I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to go here for just a moment. And I've been, trying, I've been running from this all day long. But I'm going to go here. Luke 15, Jesus is talking about the lost. He uses the 90, just you can go read it for yourself. Luke 15, he, the 99, the 100 sheep, 99 found, one lost. He seeks out the one, 10 coins. Goes and seeks out the one that was lost. Nine were found, one was lost. Then we go to the end and it's, the parable of the prodigal son. It's really the parable about two lost boys. Two lost boys. And this is a little, I'm, I'm going to get a little, I have a little bit of a different viewpoint of this parable than some might, but just hear me out for a moment. If you want to talk about it afterwards and say you're wrong, that's cool, let's talk. But just hear me out for a moment. When I read that story, you see there's a lot of emphasis on the prodigal son. The prodigal son was lost. And the way I see that is that we at all, we all were born prodigals. You can read it, you might disagree, but we're all born prodigals. God gives us this life, and in the beginning, what did man do? We chose to disregard God's way and go our own way. And that's what the son does, right? That's what we do. We come to this earth, we're born, and we go our own way. And then all of a sudden, a light goes off and we're like, hey, there's something more at work here. I, this world is leaving me empty. It's leaving me void and I need something more. So what does the father do? The father draws us home and he's anxiously awaiting our revival because that or our arrival because that is where we belong. That's the way I see the prodigal. But then you have the older brother. He was lost too. He was way lost. He was close in proximity to the father. He served in kids ministry. No, no, he served in youth ministry. We love you kids ministry workers. He served, I'll talk about my own people. I love you too, people. He served in youth, right? He worked hard. He opened the church doors, but he still didn't know the love of the father, right? He had all kinds of chances. His dad, he goes to his dad. He's mad because his lost brother comes home and he gets all the focus, right? So the elder brother, what's he do? He's, he's mad at his dad. And he said, you don't do that for me. And his dad's like, no, you don't understand, son. All this stuff I just gave your father is accessible to you too. And what am I getting at? I don't want to go here, but I, I can't not. I'm sorry. God loves both boys. God loves both boys. And they both need attention. If you have, if, 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 I'm going to say a few things. If you know an older brother, you know someone that's close in proximity, but they're far off. We spend a lot of time focused on these people. We spend a lot of time running after them. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But what, what did the father offer the son, the older brother? What, did he, what was he trying to convince him? He was trying to convince him, son, I love you. And what was the elder brother trying to do? He was trying to prove his love for the father. 
but he didn't get that his dad loved him because he was just his son. He didn't, he didn't get that. And what am, I, what am I trying to communicate? If you know an older brother, stop trying to get them to fall in love with Jesus. Instead, try to convince them to show them, to offer them the truth that Jesus loves them. It's way different. That's what the father offered the older brother in the story. He tried to say, hey, I love you, son. Stop trying to earn this. When Jesus was baptized, he hadn't done a thing when it comes to his ministry. His ministry hadn't begun. But what does God the Father say? He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done a thing. And that's the way that God loves us. It's the same way. If we're in Christ, it's as if we're his son and we have done nothing wrong. Because Jesus washes us clean. So stop trying to convince your older brothers to love Jesus. Try to show them that, that Jesus loves them. But I, I want to say this as well. we got a lot of prodigals that need a lot of attention. And there's a time to focus on the older brother. But man, we got a lot of people that have never heard the gospel. And to be honest with you, a lot of people expect people in pastoral leadership to go after older brothers. And there's a time for that. But I'm telling you something. God is ready to move. And he is speaking loudly. And he's saying, I got a lot of people that have never heard my message. And it's time you put a little more focus on them. And that's what I hear in my spirit. And if that doesn't resonate with you, that's okay. Both brothers need attention. But I do believe that as the last days, I believe that billions of people still need to hear the gospel before Jesus ever comes back. That sounds a lot of, like a lot of work to me. Billions of people, people, think about it. This should bother us more than anything. Did you hear what I said? This should bother us more than anything. It's really hard to fathom never hearing the message of Jesus if you're sitting here tonight. It's probably really hard to fathom. If we know God and His Word, we know what the ends look like for these billions of people. Revelations 20, 11 through 15. I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found in them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. The other book was open, another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire.
this should bother you. This should bother you. Especially the people that never even heard it. Do you understand? The people that never heard it. You see, the church was God's, I've said this before, the church was God's plan A to spread the good news. There's not another Messiah coming. God said, hey church, you spread the good news. And if we really thought it was good, and we really thought hell was that bad, then we would. I'm not trying to make you feel this small. I mean, you might. I do. I'm just trying to open your eyes. There are a lot of people that don't know. And they've never heard. And we're worried about the people that have heard it 600 times. We've got a lot of people that haven't even heard. doesn't mean we don't want those older brothers to come home. It just means those prodigals need to hear the gospel. I've heard sermon after sermon, preach sermon after sermon myself, trying to compel people to spread the good news to the lost and dying world. And I pray, I don't understand, but I pray that this, this is enough, that these verses will be enough for you. Because you sat here, the palace of praise exists, you're in the church, some of you in this place know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because there were people throughout the course of history who refused to be silent. You sat here because someone refused to be silent about the hope that was on the inside of them. People that were threatened with death, people that were killed for their faith, people who faced true persecution have stood the test of time and proclaimed the good news of Jesus and that's why you and I get to sit here today. I'm almost done, maybe. Because church, church, we know the God of hope. We know him. We have the God of hope living on the inside of us. We have the hope that the world needs. So they need to see it in our lives. They need to see it in action. They need to see it. They need to hear it out of our mouths. And they need to experience it when they are around us. And if hope will be our anthem, and hope will be our attitude, as the world gets crazier out there, we look all the more sane in here. It is in the darkness that hope shines brightly. So we need not fear the darkness. Instead, we need to spread the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Would you stand?